Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, it's great to have you once again with us. Hopefully you're enjoying your cup of coffee and logging in to, uh, to learn about science, learn about uh, brain development, which is going to be pretty cool today. So it's a little bit of a change of pace of the typical COVID situations that we talk about. Um, again, I do want to make sure that everyone uh, remains cognizant of, of the disease and, and protection and prevention. Uh, I, I cannot emphasize enough that you have to wear your mask and wear your shield. Keep your eyes protected. Very, very important during this time as the pandemic evolves. On Friday, we'll give you an update on COVID. On uh, John Schreiber will be back. Uh, and he will have brand new information for you on uh, COVID, COVID-related matters. So please join us. Also, um, just a reminder that this evening we, we have... Uh, uh, our wonderful uh, Dr. Rob Ketter and Dr. Garnecchio, who will talk about autism. It's called Navigating Autism in the 2020 Era, a toolkit for pediatric primary care. This is the typical pond house event, which is now virtual. So you can bring your wine or whatever you want to drink uh, while uh, Dr. Ketter and Dr. Garnecchio give you an update on, on uh, autism. So please sign up. You can still log in. Uh, I think it's for a small fee, not, not too expensive, and uh, you will learn quite a bit. Now, this morning, we have a fantastic Grand Rounds. This is going to be a, a neuroscience Grand Rounds. I think you'll learn a lot from an outstanding faculty member. And uh, I am so pleased that, uh, that Dr. Martin uh, brought in a scientist to talk about uh, uh, neurological issues. Uh, John is, uh, is a big promoter of, of neuroscience and uh, advancing our field. And he has connected with someone here uh, in, in town who actually is an expert in this area. Uh, so I'm going to ask uh, John, who is the head, our head of the neurosurgical services, to come up and introduce our speaker. I think he has a couple of slides. Uh, he's going to do it in a, in a socially appropriate way. I think he's going to be wearing his mask. I'm going to put mine back on. And uh, I'm going to welcome John. And I'm going to now pass it on. And he's got a clean clicker here. So, John, you're on. Thanks very much, Juan. Uh, good morning, everyone. So I want to welcome you to Pediatrics Grand Round this morning. Um, just doing a little reflection uh, uh, as I was preparing for Dr. Conover uh, to come and join us on uh, the Division of Neurosurgery. Uh, Paul Kane have launched us in 2007, and since that time, we've had 25 speakers. Dr. Conover is the 25th uh, speaker for our iteration of Grand Rounds. Um, and I really sort of thought about you know, the progression of our service going from, you know, can we do this? Can we have a functional neurosurgery service? Uh, to um, uh, how do we do this? And then finally, how do we do this to make things better uh, for our colleagues, both locally and nationally? And we're really sort of at that point now uh, where our division is contributing uh, in some pretty meaningful ways. Um, we're, just to give you some background in terms of what Dr. Conover will be speaking about today, hydrocephalus is a $2 billion a year problem for our healthcare system. Uh, and it's 30% of our operative volume. Uh, the reality is 20% of the patients that we treat for hydrocephalus um, have hydrocephalus as a result of uh, intraventricular hemorrhage of uh, prematurity, uh, and that's uh, something that occurs in 15 to 20% of newborns uh, that are less than 1,500 grams, so certainly something that impacts our colleagues in the NICU. Um, the pathophysiology of hydrocephalus is relatively, uh, um, we've certainly made some progress in terms of understanding of this, uh, what, what are the risk factors and how does this progress and happen. Uh, and from the standpoint of treatment, I can tell you that from our perspective uh, at Connecticut Children's, we certainly have uh, contributed in the areas of improving clinical practice. Uh, but what we were, were going to be listening uh, to Dr. Conover speak to us about today is what do we do following hemorrhage? Uh, uh, how do we treat these children? And certainly stem cells hold promise as a means of addressing periventricular inflammation that contributes to the development of hydrocephalus. Dr. Conover um, is a professor in the Department of Physiology and Neurobiology at UConn. I had the, the privilege and uh, uh, really good fortune to meet her through um, a residency uh, uh, function recently. And her lab focuses on the analysis of stem cell fate decisions with emphasis on regenerative mechanisms of repair and brain injury and disease. Her current R01 uh, is on uh, disease mechanisms of prenatal and pediatric acquired hydrocephalus. Uh, and with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Conover. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just one second. Uh, okay. Um, hello, everyone, and thank you for being here. I wish everyone could be in the room with us, but um, we just have to carry on as as until this gets resolved. Um, so, my as was mentioned by John, um, my lab is a stem cell um, 
Developmental Neurobiology Laboratory. And so today what I'll talk about is, is really a lot of um, um, early developmental uh, neurobiology, how, how the, um, really starting out how the brain um, um, starts to develop and some of the systems that are involved. And um, with a particular focus on brain neural stem cell niches, in particular the one that's next to the ventricular system. And so then um, this implies um, what would happen in cases of fetal onset hydrocephalus. And so if, uh, since this is an educational presentation, I, I hope that some of the things that you'll be able to take away are um, first listed is to be able to distinguish between um, the human stem cell niche that lies along the ventricular system and how that compares to rodent and non-human primates. Um, you should be able to explain um, how the ependymal epithelial lining, so this is going to cover the whole ventricular system, how this uh, develops in fetal and postnatal development, and then what are some of the crucial functions that it performs. And then lastly, how fetal onset hydrocephalus impacts um, or potentially can impact this um, brain stem cell niches and what might be some of the consequences um, to neurogenesis and also to forming that lining that forms along the ventricle wall. Okay, so we'll start here. Um, this is from one of our review articles and really what it is, I, I can't um, use a pointer, but uh, so I'll describe um, the cells that I'm talking about. Um, so. What this is showing is in, um, this is in rodent development, and it's um, early development from e, um, E11.5 up until adulthood, and it's really taking um, the stem cell niche, um, which, if you remember, you start with a neural tube, and all around the neuro neural tube are neuroepithelial cells, or essentially stem cells. And so in the first image, um, the, some of the stem cells, those neuroepithelial cells, are shown in purple. Um, and these are just highly proliferative cells that will just grow the system. Um, and then as you move on to the next image, um, you start to have neurogenesis occurring. And so you can see the dark blue neurons that are being formed uh, from this stem cell population. And these uh, neuroepithelial cells or stem cells now have this long process, this radioglial process, that contacts the vasculature um, on, in the superficial layer. As we move forward, um, late embryonic development, again, this is in mouse, but it's very similar in human um, up through ne neonatal development. Uh, you now have the stem cells that are um, going through gliogenesis, producing astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, and they're also producing the yellow cells that you see that are going to line the ventricle. Um, these are multiciliated cells, um, and they're going to cover the whole um, ventricle wall. And so they provide a barrier system um, preventing um, CSF from leaking into the brain, but they also allow exchange to occur between the interstitial fluid of the brain and the CSF. <clears throat> you can see that the stem cells, still shown in purple, um, now have their cell bodies that are just below or just above, in this case, the, um, that yellow epithelial lining, but they have a thin process that contacts the CSF, um, and they have a primary cilium on that thin process. And then in rodents, um, we have continued neurogenesis, and stem cells remain um, through old age. Um, the new neurons are shown here in red, um, and this will continue, as I said, into old age. And so while we're interested in using mouse as a model system, our primary focus is really to understand what's going on in human. And so what you can see here in the cross-section of a, a, a rodent brain, a mouse brain in this case, in the adult, uh, you have the, um, in blue, you have the cerebral spinal fluid of the uh, lateral ventricles, and to the left, um, or, or on the lateral side of each, shown in green, uh, you have the subventricular zone or the stem cell niche. Um, or the, it's also called the SVZ in short. Um, the new neurons that are produced uh, migrate from this zone through the anterior forebrain, and it's shown in red in the upper image, 
um, into the olfactory bulb. And so in the adult rodent and some non-human primates as well, you have this migratory pathway that goes to the olfactory bulb and supplies new interneuron populations uh, within this region. Um, and so this is just one of our schematics showing the organization of this stem cell niche. And so this is in the adult, where you retain stem cells, um, shown in purple, and uh, you have continued neurogenesis, which is uh, shown by the red cells. Um, but, and the green cells are astrocytes, and these are sort of support cells, and um, their importance will um, become a little bit more apparent as, as we go, go on in the talk. If you look at human, um, from an MRI, if things are replicated as what's found in, in rodent, then the lateral walls of the ventricle, shown in blue, uh, should be where the stem cell niche is. But in the adult human, our lab and other labs have pretty much found that there is next to no um, neurogenesis, so no of the red, none of the red cells are present. Um, and whether or not there are stem cells um, uh, is, is still a little bit in debate, um, in large part because it's very hard to identify these cells, especially as if they're um, quiescent. Um, so I've, I diagram them here as uh, transparent cells, um, but for the most part, our lab and other labs have found that there's greatly reduced neurogenesis after the age of two in humans. Uh, and so we became interested in the ventricular system because it's, it's the place that houses this stem cell niche through development. And um, as you know, the cori plexus, um, which is a thin membrane that, that floats within the lateral ventricle system, uh, generates a majority of the cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF. Um, the CSF uh, circulates metabolites and clears waste products throughout the brain. And the epithelial lining, um, those yellow cells that I'd shown before, the ependema, um, provide a barrier and exchange function within the brain. So we became interested initially in what happens, so I'm going to go into aging before I go back to um, early development. <clears throat> we were interested in what happens uh, when there's cases of um, ventricular megaly found associated with aging. And so from this graph, you can see that um, around the age of 60, you have an increase in lateral ventricle volume. And this is data that we got from Washington University School of Medicine, their um, OASIS study, which is an Alzheimer's uh, disease study. And what we um, requested from them were just the MRI scans of the cognitively normal controls. And so this is data from the normal controls, not the AD. Uh, brains. And what we do is we take the MRIs, we subtract out all the brain material, and then we 3D model the ventricles so we can have an idea of uh, ventricle volumes and surface areas. And uh, here you can see in red uh, a male that's, uh, this is just representative, a male around 30 years old or a female, um, both would be the same. Um, this is a typical ventricle volume. And then a male at 89 years old, uh, you can see this increase in ventricle volume. And so now we know that in mice, you still retain stem cells along the niche and that, or, uh, along the ventricle, and they're capable of replacing those epithelial cells that line the ventricle. In humans, you no longer have stem cells. So we were really curious what happens in this case if you have an expanded surface area what's going to be covering that, that surface now if, um, with this expansion. And so in the lower graph, um, this is a longitudinal analysis where each line is a single individual and each dot on the line is in a different time that they went for an MRI scan. And what they're, um, again, we subtracted out and, and just looked at, it subsegmented the ventricles and looked at the volumes of the ventricles. And you can see that for the most part, if there's an upward trend, um, it, it continues um, on, on an upward trend. Um, and, but there are cases where, and, and I can't point to it, um, but there are cases where people are in their 80s, uh, close to 90, and they have a ventricle volume, you can see at the lower um, right-hand side, um, a couple cases where they have a ventricle volume that's equivalent to what you would find in a 20 to 40-year-old. And so for us, we would, um, 
distinguish this. These are all, again, cognitively normal, designated as cognitively normal. And we would designate these people, at least as far as ventricle um, health, um, we would consider this healthy aging versus the other ones um, that, that would not be. So we wanted to take this further. You can do all sorts of things with the MRIs, but you sort of reach a, a, a barrier after a while. Um, this is just one example where we took um, the initial MRI um, is shown in blue, and then uh, six years later, um, at 86 years old, you can see in red where there's expansion of, of that volume. And the problem is that this doesn't give us the cell organization, and this is what my lab is interested in. We're a molecular and cellular biology laboratory. And so we wanted to see what was happening along the wall um, in cases where there were expanded ventricles. And so we got tissue um, from cases where the ventricles were enlarged, and we, um, we stained for either the ependymal cells as epithelial cells lining the wall. And if you look down at G, um, you can see these cells are outlined in green. They're stained for beta-catenin, which is an adherence junction protein, um, and it um, shows the uh, adherence between the, the um, ependymal cells and qu it quite nicely defines the ependymal cells. So in, in this case, there's clear um, intact ependymal cells that are lining the wall. But in red, you can see a marker for astrocytes, um, GFAP. And um, this is a, I, I should have um, stated that this is a whole mount preparation. So we sort of fillet the, um, the wall of the, um, the ventricles. So we have a thin layer. And then we're looking straight down on the ventricle surface. So at the surface, the red indicates where astrocytes are and what we call an astrocytic, an astrocytic scar or um, gliotic scar. And so clearly um, in all of the uh, examples that we had of um, enlarged ventricles in aged humans, um, we found this scarring along, uh, along the wall. And so we decided that what we wanted to do was um, take samples where we had the MRI and we also had the tissue so we could make a little bit more um, definitive uh, conclusion of what was going on. And so in this case, we had two subjects, um, both in their 80s. Um, the MRI scans, you can see one had a small ventricle and you can see on the graph below that subject one had a ventricle volume about the range of um, 20 to 30 year olds. So that's that was quite nice. Um, the other one actually had an Alzheimer's disease, and um, it had an enlarged ventricle, and you can see where it falls on the graph below. So we had the, um, the scans, and then we also had the tissue. And so you can see the large ventricle on the left and the small ventricle brain on the right. We had the slabs of tissue. Um, you can see um, clearly the left brain is an Alzheimer's disease brain as well. The other one is, is, is quite nice looking. Um, and so we were able to then go through our procedure where we had MRI scans that we could subsegment and then generate a 3D reconstruction of the lateral ventricle. You can do this in mouse as well or other rodents or other animals. Um, not using an MRI, you can use coronal sections. You can trace the ventricles, and then you can get your 3D reconstruction. Um, but we also had the tissue. Um, in human, we had to take um, those fillet sections along the ventricle lining um, from multiple slab, um, slab preparations. Uh, from the mouse, we can just do it in one single go. Uh, we can just get one whole tissue that contains the whole ventricle lining. And, and remember, this time we're we're only looking at the lateral wall um, because this is where the stem cells um, reside and, and this is what we were most interested in. Um, and then we take that tissue and we stain it, as I said before. And green indicates uh, intact ependymal cells. Red indicates where there's scarring. And then we can just make a, a nice little colorized montage uh, to simplify things, showing red as regions where there's scarring and green where there's intact ependymal cells or the epithelial lining is intact. And then we can... Um, 
then put all of these tiny little images, and there's multiple images, many, many in, images that we collect, and we put them on a 2D um, um, reconstruction of, of the ventricle. Um, and in that way, we can then uh, document what is going on. And so green indicates where there's intact ependymal cells, a nice intact epithelial lining with the multiciliated cells. Red indicates where there's scarring, and yellow is sort of in between. It's not quite full-on scarring, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not intact ependyma. And so we did this for the two cases, um, subject one, um, or, or the subject that had the large ventricle, um, as I had shown before, as, as the demonstration is again shown here, um, different images were then put together into a montage, and then we um, were able to uh, analyze what the whole entire wall looked like. Um, and then we were to do the, um, the small ventricle. And for this, initially I thought, well, this patient was in their 80s, late 80s, and I thought, okay, they have a small ventricle, but you know, there might be some wear and tear, and so I expected that there might be some scarring along the wall. Not a lot, but some. But what we found was beautiful intact ependymal cells along the whole entire wall. Um, some of those images are shown here. So um, that was nice to see. That means that your ependymal cells can last a whole lifetime. Um, whether or not they're functional, that's something that we weren't able to uh, determined, but we're assuming they looked nice and healthy, so we're assuming that they were functional as well. So to sum up this part, um, what you um, normally should have is uh, intact ependymal cells that are multiciliated. They're going to allow laminar flow um, at the surface of um, the ventricle wall. They're also um, involved in bulk flow and exchange into the CSF, so removal of toxins, excess neurotransmitters into the CSF. If you now have a scar, which is shown in blue, um, you're changing the whole composition. And so it's similar to your skin. If you have a fibrotic scar, it's not going to have the functions of normal skin. Similarly, in the brain, this scar is not going to have the same functions. What we found in human brain samples is that where there was scar, there was also edema. And where there was edema, there was also um, aggregates of beta, um, beta amyloid and tau proteins. Um, so the, clearly, the exchange was not occurring as, as it normally should. Um, again, there's no cilia on the surface, and, and so that function also uh, would be compromised. So ventricular megaly, as, as I said, can, um, can occur in aging. Um, it's also seen in schizophrenia at a younger age, depression. Uh, CTE almost, well, always will have um, um, ventricular megaly. Um, that, that's become quite clear, and one of the first indicators um, is, is seeing enlarged ventricles, uh, alcoholism as well, and Alzheimer's, as we had seen in one of the cases. Um, so while we could do so much with aging, we really realized that our, our mouse model wasn't really appropriate because mice retain stem cells and humans don't. And so we really wanted to go back to earlier development where you could um, pretty authentically use a mouse as a model system for, for your studies um, looking at, at human uh, development. And so remembering the organization here, the stem cells that have that fine a uh, little process that contacts the CSF and the primary cilium um, at the end of that process. Um, and when you look down on a whole mount preparation, um, so those fillet sections, and you look down on the surface, and you stain with the, um, the adherence junction um, beta, um, beta catenin and outline those ependymal cells, uh, you can clearly see them in um, the image that's labeled E. And in red, you see um, the processes. And um, you really have to zoom in to much higher magnification. But they, uh, there'll be several stem cells, um, and they'll be denoted by having just a primary cilium. And so what you have is shown in the colorized image um, on the right, um, where um, this looks like, this organization looks like the child's toy, a pinwheel, and so they're called pinwheel organizations. And what you have is, in the core, multiple stem cells, 
surrounded by these differentiated multiciliated epithelial cells, the ependymal cells. And so we were really interested in how you can retain stem cells and why do you retain them in this sort of organization. These pinwheel organizations are essentially regenerative units because they have stem cells at their core. And that means those cells have the capacity for regenerative repair or you know, adding additional cells or, or whatever. Um, once you lose those cells, uh, you no longer have that, uh, that form of plasticity. So just to reiterate, um, the stem cells can self-renew. Um, they will generate transit amplifying cells, which are shown here in blue. Um, these, as the name suggests, are transitory. They only last for so long, go through multiple divisions, and then they generate new neurons. Stem cells can also generate the ependymal cells, that lining um, of the ventricle. And so in, in looking at this, we became um, very interested in doing what's called lineage tracing to determine what a stem cell's fate is going to be. Um, how is it going to either go toward neurogenesis or ependymogenesis or maybe both um, so that it can contribute to the final um, makeup of the developing brain. So if we look at early human development, this is gestational week 13 to 21. You can see development of the brain at the top. And then below that, you can see the ventricular system. So as I said before, it starts very simple as a neural tube, totally surrounded by neuroepithelial cells. And then it becomes um, a little bit more complex as you have the lateral ventricle, um, the third ventricle, the aqueduct, and the fourth ventricle. Um, and this is all happening during early development, and I'll go through some of that process. So we initially um, wanted to look at how do stem cells lay down this epithelial lining? When is it being generated? And this is important for hydrocephalus work because uh, you need that barrier structure and uh, hydrocephalus could, could um, impact this whole process. And so in early mouse development, we started with mouse and then moved on to human. Uh, what you can see are, are 3D reconstructions of the mouse brain. And in blue um, is the ventricle. And blue indicates where it's neuroepithelial or stem cells. Um, the yellow at the back of the brain indicates immature ependymal cells. So that lining is just starting to form. And what we found is the lining forms from the back of the brain or the caudal region of the ventricle um, in a wave going to the rostral or the, or the front of the brain. Um, so there's this wave of ependymogenesis as you're starting to form this layer of the wall. Um, and then you can see going from E13 all the way down to P30, orange indicates where you now have uh, mature intact ependymal cells. And so in going through that in a little bit more detail, if you just focus, um, this is a little bit busy, but if you just focus on the second column um, that says lateral wall, you can see this wave of ependymogenesis as you have the pale yellow cells, the immature ependymal cells that are going to be multiciliated. Um, they start in the caudal region of the brain, and then you have this wave moving forward as you have more and more ependymal cells being laid down. They become mature, that's the orange color. And then if you go down to about P7, um, the images for P7, <clears throat> you can see that now the stem cells are indicated in green um, because they're just a fine process and not a whole cell at the surface. Um, and you can see that the beginnings of um, this pinwheel organization where clusters of stem cells are surrounded by ependymal cells. So we did this also in human, um, and it was um, nice to see that um, it was very similar to what we found in, in mouse that the posterior part of the um, ventricle um, started with ependymogenesis, so the pale yellow cells, and then there was a wave moving forward to the more anterior part. Um, so going from 21 gestational weeks to 34, you start to get mature ependymal cells. And then if we zoom in on that, um, the green indicates just the fine process of the stem cell contacting the ventricle surface. Um, the, uh, the orange is uh, those ependymal cells, those multiciliated cells. And we have the same pin, pinwheel arrangement happening that was found in rodent. But as I said before, this will only 
you can see the decreasing um, portion of the pie um, for, um, indicated in green, which indicates the stem cells, you can see that decreasing as we go um, up until seven months. And then if we go back, um, the bottom two are eight, um, eight years and 39 years, and you no longer see any stem cells there at the surface. And so this just uh, gives you another way of looking at it, this wave of pentamogenesis at different portions of the developing brain as we go from 21 gestational weeks, 29, and then up to 10 days. At 10 days, you can see um, this nice, we highlighted some of the pinwheel organization, um, this nice organization of pinwheels along the wall. Um, uh, the other thing um, to note, I, I'm sorry, I can't point to it, but, um, the green indicates um, where this, the new neurons are migrating to. So there's cortical migration that's occurring at 10 days. Uh, that doesn't last for too much longer, but the two um, pathways, one going to the olfactory bulb, so it's a, a lesser pathway in humans, and then the more major pathway going to the prefrontal cortex, that continues um, uh, you know, up through postnatal development in in humans. And that's something that's also an interest of the laboratory. Um, and I'll talk about that just sort of briefly toward the end. Okay, so this is very busy. Um, the only thing you should really need to focus on is um, are the green dots. This labels dividing uh, cells, the nucleus of dividing cells. And so this is representative of neurogenesis. And what you can see is that neurogenesis also declines as we go through development. So again, um, by two years um, in, in, a, in um, accord with other laboratories, um, neurogenesis pretty much stops in, in uh, the fetal or in the developing human brain. So we didn't only look at neurogenesis and appendemogenesis, but we also um, wanted to track um, lateral ventricle development. So how, how was it actually changing? Because that would impact um, what cells were being laid down. And so at the top, you can see MRI scans from 15 gestational weeks up to 11 years, and the ventricles are indicated in red, and you can see the change in conformation as you go through time. Um, in the two, uh, in in the graphs below, if you look at ventricle volume and also surface area, so the middle one and the far right one, you can see by the age of two, um, everything, um, the volume levels off and doesn't change. And um, the surface area similarly doesn't change either by the age of two. And so remember that the stem cells are gone by the age of two. And now you have this intact um, barrier wall along the whole entire ventricle surface. And so this, this um, makes sense um, that you no longer have um, the plasticity that you used to have when the stem cells were present and when there wasn't this um, epithelial, epithelial barrier layer. Um, so we also, the bottom in C indicates curvature analysis that we did. And this shows how the um, ventricle changes in curvature from 15 gestational weeks up until uh, 11 years. And again, you can see, well, um, to put it in perspective, um, the red and orange indicates regions of concavity, and the green and blue indicates regions of convexity. Uh, white is sort of areas of, that are flat. And again, this is stabilized by the age around the age of two, where you just no longer have any plasticity in the, in the system. And so we thought this was quite important um, for many reasons, um, but in particular, because if you're looking at the wall and the composition of the wall, if you then have any enlargement, um, there's going to be problems. And it's similar to what I'd shown before, where the only solution or one of the only solutions is to, um, to have a scar form. And so this is just a summary then of the human appendemogenesis. It starts as a wave from the posterior part of the ventricle to the anterior. Um, you have stem cells um, up through postnatal development, um, but those are then eventually lost over time until you have a full ependymal lining um, that covers the wall. So, um, and then um, the absence of stem cells and neurogenesis after around two years of age. 
So we take our data and we um, use it to um, to inform our our colleagues who are computer engineers and. Um, we've been doing this for for a brief period of time, and it's actually been um, it's actually been really fun to do because um, you get different perspectives. Um, these are engineers who really only had biology way back in high school, and and so the communication can sometimes be a little bit tricky. But that actually helps because they ask questions that we probably never had thought about. And so what we're doing here is this is an array. And imagine each of those white hexagons is a stem cell. And so this is how the wall starts out. It's all stem cells. And then normally this would be an animation, but I'll just take it in stages. Um, and then you start to have those pinwheels form. So the pentamol cells start to form and you have a core that was shown just as a black core. That's several stem cells within each, within each of those cores. And you start this way from the posterior to the anterior as you move through and then generate all these, um, this ependymal cell layer. And so in doing this, we would want to model because now we have um, all, we have all the information. We have cell counts. We know um, when ependymogenesis is starting and um, the, the, the cell numbers that are being produced. We also now have the confirmation, we have surface area, we have volume, and so we can put all of these into this modeling. And then hopefully our, our hope is to then take it to cases of hydrocephalus. And if we know the time in development, then we can apply um, what might happen because it would be a might happen um, if you ha now have an enlarged ventricle. And if this occurs in fetal development versus um, postnatally. And so one of the things that we're doing to help feed all this information is um, called lineage tracing. And so we can mark a stem cell um, with a color. So for instance, green as shown here, and then allow um, that um, stem cell to divide. And it, it will either divide asymmetrically um, to produce, to renew itself. So can uh, keep a stem cell and then also produce one of those epithelial cells, or it can divide symmetrically um, to produce and so take itself out of commission and just produce two ependymal cells. And so then that thereby you'd have a reduction in stem cell number. And we do this by something called um, a binary piggyback transpose system. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but it's a way we can label stem cells and we can give them multiple colors, um, red, green, cyan, um, and then do this lineage tracing to see what a stem cell is going to become. This is done in order to do it early enough, we have to do it in utero. And so it's called in utero electroporation. And so we take a mouse and we expose the, um, uh, the uterine horns and we inject uh, this piggyback transposon system into the ventricle. And then we use electroporation to get it into the, um, the lining of, um, we do this early enough so it's neuroepithelial cells. So it's all stem cells. So this is about E14 to 15 that, that we're doing this. We sew the mom back up, um, she delivers her pups, and then we can track and see what those labeled stem cells at E15 or 16 um, produced. Um, in particular, we're looking at the uh, pentamol lining or the ventricle lining and how the stem cells um, produce um, this pinwheel organization. And so some of the results, um, this is from a while ago, we, we have new studies um, coming out, um, but this just sh shows um, these um, labeled cells, um, representative images, um, the, the bottom is the actual image. Um, it might not look like it corresponds exactly, and that's because you have to scan up and down uh, through through the tissue a little bit. Um, but you can see um, regions where there's doublets, and so that would be a symmetric division. You can see regions where there's an associated stem cell. We Those associated stem cells are in blue. Um, that would be a... Um, asymmetric division. And in this way, we, we can try and deduce how um, you end up getting this nice arrangement of, um, of pinwheels. And so getting to congenital hydrocephalus, as you know, um, um, fluid accumulates within the ventricular system. It can be genetic, genetic or acquired. 
Um, treatment is, is somewhat limited, um, primarily the BP shunt, um, and, and there's a high failure rate after, um, after a year or two years. Uh, and so what we want to do is um, maybe improve the understanding of the pathology and progression, and then hopefully um, maybe advance the treatment. And so our strategy, since we're a, a, a web bench uh, research laboratory, is to define the uh, cytoarchitecture and the fluid dynamics as it changes with um, hydrocephalus versus uh, normal um, situations and then define the stem cell contribution, um, whether it's to neurogenesis or ependymogenesis, um, how that's going to be affected, and then use uh, our longitudinal morphometrics to predict cellular changes in the, in the fluid dynamics in situations of hydrocephalus. So our working hypothesis right now is that um, the expansion of the ventricles uh, creates an increased demand for ependymal cells. Um, we think that that would be depleting the stem cell pool. And in depleting the stem cell pool, you're going to affect neurogenesis. Um, but you're also going to compromise the important um, barrier exchange system um, that's provided by the ependymal cells. Um, so um, we're trying to figure out uh, what components of this are, are true um, and um, how this whole system is working. So again, this is a little bit busy, um, but this is um, what we're working on now. Uh, the project is, is just in its infancy, so, um, so I don't have a huge uh, amount of data. But what, what we're doing here is we're generating a mouse model of post-infectious hydrocephalus. And so we wanted to, um, in some ways, replicate what happens when a pregnant mother becomes infected with influenza, um, it can result in hydrocephalus. And so we want to know what is the mechanism that, that um, is, is causing the hydrocephalus. And so um, to, to make it a little bit easier, our, um, the blue indicates where we are right now. So what we're doing, we're, we're injecting uh, either influenza virus or a component of influenza, which is um, neuromididase. And so when you hear of H1N1, the N stands for neuromididase. And we've, through previous work, we found that neuromididase will cleave the linkages between uh, ependymal cells and thereby release them in, into, um, into the CSF, and thereby you lose your ependymal lining. Um, so we can either just use the single component, um, neuromididase, or we can inject the full-fledged flu um, virus in, into the um, ventricles of developing embryos and then track what the consequence of that is. And so the things that we're, we're doing is we're, looking, um, we're doing viral tracking, uh, we're looking at ventricle volume changes, um, repair and replacement or gliosis that might happen. We're looking at inflammation, um, edema and transport um, mechanisms that might be faulty then. Um, and then also at neurogenesis as well. We can also um, inject into the ventricles of neonatal animals. Um, and we can also use intranasal um, uh, injection um, of the virus. From there, um, we can then go back, because um, you always want to take the worst case scenario first, so you can try to understand what might be going on. And then we can go back and either do uh, interplacental infection, or we can infect the pregnant mom. Um, and then we can um, even use uh, vaccinations to see how that might uh, influence um, in um, either protection of um, against hydrocephalus, no protection, or perhaps it, it could even be deleterious. Um, so that's our working model right now. And um, what we're doing is we're collecting um, uh, coronal sections so that we can make 3D uh, reconstructions of the lateral ventricle, which are, are shown here in part. Um, and then we're also taking um, a look at the tissue. And so this is a case where we use neuromididase, and this is a small amount of neuromididase. And you can see enlarged ventricle on the um, right panel of A. Um, and then if you look below, there's also glial scarring that, that occurs. And so this fits with um, 
with our prediction, um, there's gliosarring and there's um, uh, increase in volume of the ventricle. Uh, this is another uh, more recent example um, where the neuromididase was introduced um, po early postnatally, neonate, and uh, you can see expansion of um, the ventricle in the injected side. And then this is when we inject influenza. Uh, so you can see expansion of the ventricle here. And so now we're tracking, um, not necessarily at this late stage, but we're tracking progression and seeing um, what are the effects along the way in order to get this, um, this enlargement of the ventricles and what, are, what is being compromised along the way. And so timing is really critical. If we do the uh, injections uh, or infections early in development, it's going to have a different consequence than if we do it neonatally or if we do it um, postnatal or into adulthood. And this is just one more example. Um, the ependymal cells, um, the lining cells are shown in red. Um, in green are astrocytes that are now invading in those uh, regions where there are, is still some intact ependymal cells, but now you have um, the beginnings of a glial scar in those regions where the ependymal cells are missing. Um, so that's, um, that's the model that we're working with for post-infectious hydrocephalus. Um, it, it can also be applied to other forms of hydrocephalus. We just started with this one, um, but we're hoping to have a, a nice model with which we can work with. The other thing, and probably the last thing that I'll, I'll talk about um, today, is this um, migration that we're also looking at. Um, in mouse, uh, you can see um, on the top uh, image, you can see in red the migratory pathway um, that goes into the olfactory bulb. This is actually very interesting because um, this, this is a pathway going through, um, in this case, it's an adult brain, um, mouse brain. Um, so it's going through. Um, mature neuronal tissue, um, these are highly migratory cells, but they're restricted to this very tight pathway. Once they get into the olfactory bulb, they disperse. Um, they leave the pathway, they disperse, and then they get to the proper layer where they're supposed to go. And there's multiple um, interneuron populations that are migrating. And what's interesting is that they're already predetermined. So once they're made, um, in that subventricular zone region where neurogenesis occurs, once they're made, they're already predetermined. And some of the different types of um, interneurons are shown in the colored um, image um, below. Um, and they migrate as a group or an aggregate, and then they separate and they migrate to their distinct regions. And so, it's very curious um, how this is all happening. And so we're, we're using single cell uh, transcriptomics and proteomics to define these populations. And then we're looking at um, receptors and ligands that might be important in not only um, guiding the initial migration and keeping them to a tight pathway, but then also allowing the, the proper distribution once they get uh, to the olfactory bulb. And so we're also doing this in human. Uh, again, the pathway is, uh, is a lesser pathway to the olfactory bulb, um, a more major pathway to the prefrontal cortex. And, but we think the same mechanism is being used. So we're going to identify the different neuron populations, uh, these um, highly migratory neuron populations, and then see how they're distributed in the prefrontal cortex and see if the same cues um, and molecular mechanisms that are used in mouse are actually used in human as well. So I'll just end there. Um, and I just want to acknowledge the many people who have contributed to this work. Um, the current uh, graduate students are shown in purple. Um, uh, Juliana, Dasha, Patrick, and Mushara. Um, we also have a nice team of undergraduates who work with us, um, six of them that are, that are indicated. Um, our collaborators are shown on the right um, from UConn, Yale. Um, we use resources um, and databases, which are also indicated. Um, and have been extremely helpful. And the human tissue that we get is from Mark DiBiggio um, in Canada. 
And we also get it from the NIH um, Neurobiobank. Um, my funding sources, NIH, Hydrocephalus Association, and, and some Yukon funding. Uh, and I just want to show you our current lab group. We took off, you can see in most people's hands, their masks, took off a mask briefly to get a photo and then um, put them back on. Um, but some of the lab members um, um, recently um, that are in my laboratory. And then I'll just end there. Um, and if you have any questions, I'm more than willing to answer them. Uh, thank you, Dr. Conover. That was uh, absolutely fabulous. Uh, I, got a, I already got text messages from a number of people saying the science made my, made my day today. So, oh, so, you, so you, seriously, you, you have brought some, uh, some, some respite amongst the, the, the non-science news that come out, comes out frequently in other arenas. We'll leave it at that. Uh, so we have, uh, for, for you and, and John will get closer, uh, but socially distant in some way. Uh, so maybe, John, if you can uh, make some comments, and then I have several questions if you want to close up, you know, based on you know, just the clinical application of this, uh, of her talk and how this could link to what you do. Yeah, no, I, thanks, Juan. Uh, and Dr. Conover, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, I, I think during, uh, during the conversation, I think I was one of the texts that uh, went uh, out to Juan. I think there's some really tremendous opportunities for collaboration here uh, with multiple divisions, our division. Uh, the Division uh, uh, of Neurology uh, and Neonatology. Um, and uh, uh, again, just very, very much enjoyed the talk. Thank you. So I, I Yeah, so we have a, questions. so Dr. Conner, if you can come back to the Please. microphone. And first uh, is from Dr. Livingston, who is one of our pediatricians who uh, specializes in the, in the child abuse program. And uh, thank you for this interesting presentation. Do you understand what causes scarring of the ventricular wall? Do human infants and children with hydrocephalus have such scarring? In the last part was, do uh, they have such do they scarring? Yeah, what causes scarring of the, of the ventricular wall? And do human infants and children with hydrocephalus have such scarring? Yeah, um, if you, well, actually, you can look at the center image here. Um, there's a huge population of astrocytes right next to the ventricle wall. If you lose those ependymal cells and if there's no stem cells, you have no regenerative replacement that can occur. Um, and those uh, astrocytes, we, we um, um, think, um, are then activated. Well, we know uh, they are activated and they proliferate and, and they will form this, the scar tissue. And so that's one of our questions. At what level um, can the stem cells compensate? And we know they can only compensate up to around the age of two because then, then you don't have them anymore. Um, and so the only recourse then is, is to have a, a, an astrocytic scar. Um, so, and it's similar to what we found in adult uh, humans um, that you'll have scarring along the wall. So it's those astrocytes that are right there next to the lining that are going to contribute to the scar. And um, whether or not children will have it, I think it depends when um, hydrocephalus started, um, because you could have expansion of the stem cell pool in hydrocephalus if it's early enough on. We don't know if that's the way it goes. Or you could have early reduction in a stem cell pool. Um, but either way, you're going to have astrocytes there. Unless it starts very early on, um, then astrocytes aren't even made yet. Um, so they wouldn't be able to compensate. And I think those are the very severe cases that you just, you, there's nothing you can do with. For Dr. Livingston's population, those that children are going to average around four months, so four months. Um, okay, so that that would make yeah, sense. Yeah, dramatic. So, uh, from uh, Dr. Aksadi, would it be possible to reprogram periventricular ependymal cells or uh, other progenitors to force them to regain neurogenesis by some process such as gene therapy or altering gene regulation by uh, oligonucleotides? <laughs> Um, I, I'm reviewing NIH grants right now, and I'm not going to talk about them except to say those, those are things that our people are proposing. So absolutely. I mean, it, it's like anything. I mean, if you, if you want to go into any sort of gene therapy, there's all the complications. Um, so I think you have to weigh the pluses and minuses. Um, but I think what we need first is a, is a better understanding of the whole process. Um, 
we don't really even know if stem cells that contribute to neurogenesis then switch to ependymogenesis or if there's a separate population that is just for ependymogenesis. So there's so many things that we just don't know yet. And I, I, I think um, those things need to be, to be answered, but maybe they can be done in concert with some of these other trials. From Dr. Buckland, uh, uh, one of our, our other neurosurgeons, uh, given the close association between migration a glial genesis and fetal vasculature, how does rodent fetal cerebral vascular development compare to human cerebral vasculature? So rodent versus humans. That's, that's an excellent question. I don't really know. I know about mouse. I don't know so much about human. And that, again, goes back to this, um, this issue that the more tissue he can get, um, the, the more. Actually, that's a that's something we're very very interested in. Um, so I'm I'm glad you brought that up because um, we we should start incorporating that into our studies of the human tissue that we do get um, much more. That, that's an excellent question. That yeah. I, I see collaboration you. with Dr. Bookman here already. Yeah, so. that I would uh, love to. I think do you're going to meet yeah. with him a little bit later today. That's what I understand. Yeah. Uh, from Dr. Ching Lao, head of our oncology program, what is the relationship between SVZ stem cells and the radial glia cells? Okay, yeah, there, yeah, it's a continuum. So it, it becomes difficult to talk about them. So I generalize them as all being stem cells because they're essentially all stem cells. But you go from um, neuroepithelial cells that are just highly proliferative early on to radioglial cells. This is once you're starting to form like the, the neocortex, for instance. And so they have this long radial process to, to SVZ stem cells, which are the next component where they don't have such a long process because the vasculature is now there. You can actually see it in this image in the center. Um, now the, um, the um, SVZ stem cells just have to contact that, that vasculature. So it's actually really interesting. Um, there's two boundaries to the at least in, in rodent, the, the adult stem cell niche, um, the epithelial um, apical boundary is one and, and where the ventricle surface is. And then a, um, at the basal boundary are a vasculature. And it's actually really nice. It's almost as though the vasculature forms this little gate. Um, and so that um, constrains that stem cell niche and sort of helps define it. From uh, one of our pediatricians, uh, it starts with, wow. Um, <laughs> so could advances in gene therapy and stem cell transplantation can be used in treating fetuses or premature infants in mitigating neuronal damage? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that goes back to, to the other question. Um, absolutely, um, but I think we need, we need to understand the whole process a, a little bit better. If, if you just put in stem cells, um, what's going to direct them, them? Are they going to be directed to neurogenesis, gliogenesis, or ependymogenesis? So um, there have to be some constraints. The time of development will some, somewhat correct that because neurogenesis is only for so long. Um, so the, the environment is, is, uh, is, is um, right for um, neurogenesis early on, and then it turns into gliogenesis. So the, the timing will be critical, but maybe once those factors are understood, maybe that would be a possibility. Yeah. And there actually was a phase one trial in the setting of post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus uh, uh, that was published in 2018. I think they're in phase two currently. Um, uh, but exactly what the mechanism is, I think it's completely speculative. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, one of our orthopedic surgeons, just one word, fascinating, exclamation point. So, Kirsten, uh, thanks for listening. See, you even got the orthopedic surgeons to be uh, involved with. New. That's new, right? The brain, the brain bone axis is what we call it. So, thank you, Kirsten. Well, for I that thank comment. them because they fixed both of my son's bones. So, you know, thank you. Uh, uh, another, uh, it's uh, thank you for this very interesting presentation. What about uh, periventricular leukomalacia? Do all babies with PVL end up with irreversible scaring, scarring and hydrocephalus? Have you reached, researched this topic? Yes no, or no? I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know about that, but I'm willing to learn new things. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and, and this will be the, the last question, and it's actually my, my question. So you talked about aging and the uh, lateral ventricle volume and uh, in scarring. So is, is, it, is, the, is the increase in size of the ventricles due to loss of neuronal tissue, or is it, <laughs> or is it scarring that, you know, that doesn't allow for you know, the proper dynamics of fluid uh, mobility. What is the, maybe the yeah, combination? Um, 
absolutely always a clinician will ask me this <laughs> um you know wherever i go that's that's always the question um oftentimes we don't know what comes first um and i think that the thing to remember and anyone working with um the, the ventricular system is is the fluid dynamics and in an aging brain the production of csf actually decreases and so, and remember that if you have that ependymal lining, um, that doesn't like to stretch at all. So uh, when people say it's due to um, brain tissue loss, uh, my question is, well, how do you get, it? you need some sort of force to cause it to, to increase in size unless there's already scarring. And so I think personally, I think scarring might've come first or maybe it came together with loss of brain tissue, but until you have scarring, you're not going to have expansion unless you have a huge increase in pressure, which in aging humans that, that doesn't compute because they have reduced produ production of CSF. I mean, there might be blockage someplace else and that's a totally different situation. But um, I think once you understand the cellular um, architecture, along the ventricle system, you start to realize that there's some things that just aren't, aren't going to be possible. Um, what we do know is we never find stretched dependable cells. So we would imagine in, in large ventricles that you'd have you know, very thin cells. We never see that. They'd like to be cuboidal. And if they're not cuboidal, that's it. <laughs> They'll die, um, it seems. So um, yeah, it's, once you understand those things, I think it there's only certain ways that you can get that end result, yeah. Well, quite quite fascinating. So again, thank you. I'm gonna ask Dr. Martin to close the grand rounds and then I'll see everyone uh, next week. John? Uh, thanks very much, Juan, and thank you all for joining. I hope you uh, enjoyed that talk as much as I did. Uh, uh, stay safe out there, uh, wear a mask. Have a great morning. Thank you.